Well, I'd like to title my sermon this morning, King Saul or Prince Jonathan. I'd like to talk from the thought of King Saul or Prince Jonathan. In 1998, a phenomenal sports movie was released. It was considered a Spike Lee joint. For those that don't know, Spike Lee is that legendary film director from Atlanta, Georgia, who got his bachelor's from Morehouse College and then went on to get his Master of Fine Arts from NYU. He's produced many classic movies over the years. This movie is about the business of sports and a relationship between a father and a son. This one that I'm referring to stars Denzel Washington and Ray Allen. The name of this movie, you guessed it, is He Got Game. The father, Denzel, is in prison for the murder of his wife, and basically the governor would give him a lesser sentence if he could persuade his son, Ray Allen, who's in the movie. But in the movie, his name is called Jesus Shuttlesworth. The governor would give Denzel a lesser sentence if he can persuade his son to attend the college of the governor's alma mater. Throughout the movie, it's interesting because as you watch it, you'll see the son, Ray Allen, in some ways, he's not like his father at all. We can say that there's a, a, a contrast between the two. And in some cases, the contrast shows the son being a better representative than his dad in society. Perhaps as you think of your own story and how you are maybe different from your father, you rehearse maybe some of those painful ways that this is true in your own life, that you are different from Pops. Or perhaps you grew up without your father because he decided to leave your family in your home. And by contrast, you made it a priority to be present in your home with your children, loving, caring, and supporting them in ways that you did not receive. In a sense, you may say, by God's grace, you are a better representative of what a father is in this regard. Contrast. Whatever the contrast is or are in your life, this brings us to our passage this morning, where we see a contrast between a father and son. King Saul and his son, Prince Jonathan. And from this thought, I think Jonathan is a better representative in society, and I'll explain why. But as I set the foundation as I set the first introduction, I want to detail some of the differences between King Saul and Prince Jonathan. So, King Saul. Well, we know Saul because he's that individual. He's that tall, handsome fella who's the first king of, of, of Israel. And he has an interesting life, interesting story. As we contrast and as we think about Saul versus Jonathan, I think it's important to lay this out because, again, as I said before, there is some striking differences. There's a contrast. We see in 
The first contrast we see is Saul trusted in himself and his own abilities. We see this in chapter 13, verse 12. It says, as the Philistines were coming against him, he says, I have not sought the favor of Yahweh, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. We see that Saul here, in some ways, is not trusting a God, not trusting and depending on God, not following God in this way. In fact, he's trusting in himself. He's trusting in his own abilities to the point that he needs to force something to happen. I think in some ways we can resonate with Saul because we tend to do the same thing. But we see him trusting in himself and his own abilities. Not only that, but we also see that Saul is fear, he's displaying fear-driven disobedience. Fear-driven disobedience. We see, again, that next verse in chapter 13. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of Yahweh, your God, in which he commanded you. We see that he is disobeying what God has said. He's disobeying what God wants him to do. And we can say that it's really driven and motivated by fear. He has fear-driven disobedience. Again, in many ways, I think that we can also identify with Saul in this regard because we do the same thing. We tend to be under pressure. We tend to, 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 to fear. And there are certain things that God has called us to do that we do not do because of fear or shame or guilt. Let me give you an example. We are like Saul in this regard. When we know that we should confess our sin to a brother or a sister, we have done something wrong, we've said something wrong or did something wrong to our brother and sister, and we know that we should confess to them, but because of fear, we disobey God. Because we think that they may look at us different. They may look at us weird. They may look at us strange. So we disobey God, even though through God's word it says that we should what? Confess our sin to one another. But because of fear, we tend to disobey, just like Saul. Not only that, we see Saul is not only trusting in himself and his own abilities, not only that he has fear-driven disobedience, but he's also very complacent in some ways, too. He's passive. Chapter 14, verse 2, it says, Saul was staying in the outskirts. In the pomegranate cave, or some translation says, under the pomegranate tree. Saul should be on mission. Saul should be active. Saul should be engaged in such a way. But for some reason, he's chilling under the pomegranate tree. As I continue to keep going with Saul, Saul makes bad decisions. You ever met somebody who just make just bad decisions all the time? Like, you talk to them, and you like, what were you thinking making that decision? I think when I read about Saul, 
That's what I think about Saul. Like, why did you do that? Like, you thought that through, and that's what you came up with. I say Saul makes a bad decision, and he makes bad decisions because chapter 14, verse 24, we see here, and the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. Saul tends to be under pressure a lot, and when he's under pressure, he makes these Very, very strange and weird and bad decisions. The text says they were hard-pressed that day. So he makes this oath. He makes this rash vow that is really, really silly. And what's fascinating is Saul is with his people, and they're in the forest. Now, his son Jonathan did not hear this vow. He did not hear this oath. They weren't supposed to eat anything or they would be cursed. That's what King Saul said. So as they're in the forest, apparently Jonathan's stomach was growling. And as his stomach was growling, he sees in uh, honey dippings, dripping everywhere. And he goes, ooh, honey. He takes it and puts it in his mouth. And the text says his eyes became bright. As I read this this week, I was thinking about that commercial Remember the honeycomb cereal? Cereal. Anybody eat those anymore? Anybody eat them? Y'all know? Okay, a couple people. Amen. Amen. They they they're pretty good. But if you remember that commercial, I know we don't watch commercials like that. But remember commercial that 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 commercial took the honey, put it in his mouth, and then like the eyes became bright. That's what happens here. With Jonathan. Now, when he does this, though, he realizes because the people told him, like, hey, <laughs> your dad made this, like, oath, this rash vow this, that anyone does that is going to be cursed. But again, we have to ask Saul, why does he do that? But Saul's not alone because there's also a passage in Judges chapter 11, verses 29 through 40, where there's somebody else that makes a rash vow makes an oath that is very dumb and stupid. In this case, it's between a man and, and a daughter. And basically, uh, you don't got to turn there or anything, but basically it's a very similar thing where this person makes his oath and says that anyone that comes through the door will be sacrificed. The daughter comes through the door, and he wants to uphold his oath, uphold his vow, and... His daughter is sacrificed. A very stupid rash vow, right? Again, as we think about Saul, King Saul, he, is, he has trusted in himself and his own abilities. Fear-driven disobedience, not to mention he's passive and complacent. And he just makes bad decisions. As we contrast to Jonathan... I want you to feel the difference with this. We see Jonathan, first of all, in chapter 14, verse 1, we see that he's proactive. Uh, He's engaged. He's not uh, waiting for something to happen. Instead, he's the one that's going out 
on a mission. It says, on one day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the Philistines on the other side. But he did not tell his father. So Jonathan takes his armor bearer with him to go on his expedition to slay the Philistines. Meanwhile, Father Saul, verse 2, is chilling under the pomegranate tree. Jonathan was active. And I would say not only active, but trusted in God. But keep in mind, during this time, the Philistines had a monopoly on weaponry. They had uh, a lot of weapons when it came to go to battle. So the people of God are limited in their resources because they don't have the type of weapons that the Philistines have, but they're also limited in number. The Philistines had a a great big army, um, not enough. uh, They had more army than the people of, of Israel. But Jonathan, who's proactive, goes with his armor bearer to go on this expedition. For those that don't know what an armor bearer is, in the ancient Near East, armor bearers were officers selected by kings and high-ranking officials because of their bravery, because of their courage, and because of their willingness to essentially be ride or die. Essentially to have the, the, the person's back. They stood next to the generals when it came for battle, not to mention they held the armor of the person. This was a very significant role. So again, contrasting, Jonathan is not only proactive, but he also, in contrast to his father, trusted in God's power and trusted in God's abilities. I say that because in verse 6, it says, and I love what it says here in verse 6. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, come let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Uncircumcised. So in the Old Testament, uh, there was a sign of the covenant, right, of circumcision. So if you were a part of the people of God, you would be circumcised, particularly on the eighth day, right? The Philistines are not part of the people of God, so Jonathan's calling them uncircumcised. They don't have the sign of the covenant in that sense. He says it may be that Yahweh will work for us. For nothing can hinder Yahweh from saving by many or by a few. You see, he's putting his confidence, he's putting his trust, he's depending upon God, not in his own abilities, not in his own intellect, but he's trusting in in God. And this is a difference as a contrast between Saul and Jonathan, and it is very fascinating because if we think about Jonathan, we should have the same faith, the same confidence, the same dependence upon God like Jonathan has. Jonathan trusted in God and his power, and guess what? God showed up as he defeated some of the Philistines. Listen, I don't know who needs to hear this this morning, but there is no situation in life that God cannot step in and work his miraculous and mysterious power. It may be hopeless. It may look hopeless. It may look rocky. It may look strange, but let me encourage you with this sermonic thrust from this passage. Have confidence in God. 
and his word, and you can watch him do the unthinkable. Amen? Have confidence in in God and his word, and you can watch him do the unthinkable. There are so many things in life that we need faith for. And God is all-powerful to be able to work in such a way that is unthinkable. I'm going to keep going because there's more to be said about that. But as we continue on with the contrast between Saul and Jonathan, understand that Prince Jonathan was proactive. He trusted in God's power and abilities. And lastly, he was pastoral. He was pastoral. Uh, What I mean by that is he was a person that cared for his armor bearer and really shepherded him along the way. He had a strategic plan as he was thinking about going to the other side where the Philistines were. In verses 9 through 11, we see this plan. He says, if they say to us, wait until we come to you, Then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then he will go up, for Yahweh has given them into our hand. And this shall be the sign to us. He's coaching Dharma Bearer. Hey, if this happens, this is what we're going to do. If this happens, this is what we're going to do. It's kind of like he's preparing for the audible. Know what audible is? Uh, So in football, right, when the, the, the defense is coming, Amen? Defense is coming, right? As the defense is coming, you have different strategic plans, different strategic ideas, and you can say, if this happens, I'm going to do this play. And if this happens, I'm going to do that. This is what Jonathan is doing. He's given the strategic plan, and I would say he's very caring for the armor bearer and preparing him for what can happen. The text says, as we continue to keep reading, that the sign came in which Jonathan climbed up with his hands and his feet and his armor bearer, and they killed about 20 of the enemy. Remember, it's only two of them. Limited in number, limited in weaponry. And the text says they they killed 20, and they threw them into a great panic. God is in the business of doing the unthinkable. Last week, we had talked about uh, vision for, the vision for 2023, yeah? We talked about we want everybody um, to be known by name. For those that wasn't here last Sunday, that's what we talked about, all right? More to be said about that as we think about people's names. And remember, I mentioned not only the, the people's names, but the meaning of people's names. That's how you can get to know people, right? So in the Bible, in the ancient times, we have people that were named for a particular reason because the idea was for them to live up to their name, right? And this passage is very fascinating to me because in this scene here, in the Hebrew language, Jonathan's name means God has given Ah, that was your shouting moment right there. Let me read verse 12. And the men of garrison held Jonathan to his armor bearer and come up to us, and we will show you a thing. 
And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has given them into our hands. I think it's fascinating that Jonathan name means God has given, Yahweh has given. And in this text, God gives at least 20 of the Philistines over to be defeated by Jonathan. Names have meaning in the Bible. In essence, in some ways, God is showing the power, (laughs) his power, through Prince Jonathan. There's so much more in this text that I wish we can dive more into. But I want to pull out two key takeaways from this story, from this passage that will hopefully motivate us and encourage us as we live the Christian life. The first thing that I want to say is this. Have fearless faith in God despite having limited resources. I want you to know that you can have fearless faith in God despite having limited support. Remember in verse 2, of chapter 14, some of you are like Saul. And if I can say this very honestly and very gently and very uh, authentically, you're complacent. Uh, You are in a state of, uh, of passivity. You are sitting under the pomegranate tree when the Lord has told you to move. And because of fear driven disobedience that you are tangled up in, you're not moving. You're stuck. Uh, You're crippled. It's like quicksand that you are sinked in. You are under the pomegranate tree. (laughs) The pomegranate tree, in one sense, can be viewed as a place of complacency and passivity. Let me submit to you that everyone's pomegranate tree is not the same. Maybe your pomegranate tree looks like the pomegranate tree of success. Some of you are so successful in life that you have your feet up. Like you don't need to do anything because you feel like you've already made it. You feel like you've already won. You feel like the victory has already been done. And in essence, your success hinders you because you're not moving in the way that the Lord wants you to move. You're sitting under the pomegranate tree. Perhaps your pomegranate tree looks like failures. And as a contrast between success and failures, you're defined by your failures. You take it as your identity. And when you rehearse many things that you have messed up, balls that you have dropped, and it cripples you and you cannot move forward. So you stay under the pomegranate tree. In essence, your failures hinder you because you're not moving in the direction that the Lord wants you to move. Perhaps your pomegranate tree looks like the pomegranate tree of excuses. I can't start this business because I don't have this. I can't do this because of my coworkers. I can't do this because I'm overweight. I can't do this because of my kids. I can't do this because I am full of addiction to sex, to, 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 to money, and to social media. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. And you're swimming 
in the deep blue ocean of negative voices, negative excuses that paralyze you and you can't move forward the way God has called you to move. The relational and personal God, Yahweh. So you sit under the pomegranate tree. Let me encourage you to have confidence in God and his word and watch him do the unthinkable. Do you know how crazy and fearless Jonathan was to go up with his armor bearer not having the latest weaponry, to attack the enemy. From a human perspective, how idiotic, how insane, how illogical that is. But anything is possible with God. God is in the business of doing the unthinkable, even with limited resources. And since we're talking about limited resources, there's a passage in the New Testament where Jesus feeds about 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. Don't talk to me about limited resources. You can have confidence in God and his word because he's in the business of doing the unthinkable, of doing the impossible, doing the things that you think can't be done, giving you victory over whatever like he did with Jonathan. The question is, Roosevelt, do you believe? And I'm not just talking about like half believe. I'm talking about genuinely really believe. I think many of us don't. And that's why maybe we don't see many miracles or many unthinkable things that God does. Because our faith is very weak. I want to encourage you that we can have faith in God and his word. God can do the unthinkable. He did the unthinkable on the cross. And from a human perspective, how illogical, how insane it was for him to send Jesus on our behalf to suffer and to die in our place when Christ did nothing wrong It was us that should have been on the cross. It was us that should have took the penalty. It was us that should have took the lashes. It was us that should have took all that Christ paid for on the cross. How unthinkable is that? That God in his economy, in his mind said, you know what? In order to rescue, in order to save people, I am going to send my only begotten son. And anyone that has faith and trust and believe in him, they will have eternal life and they will be adopted into the family of God. The unthinkable, the impossible, God did on our behalf. So if you hear, my encouragement is for you to believe in the unthinkable. It's to believe in the illogical from a human perspective and trust in Christ for salvation. And if you are here and you are a part of the church, continue to keep trusting in him. The gospel message is not just for people that don't believe. The gospel message is for people that also believe as well. Because it remains, it, 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 it sustains us and it gives us 
motivation, but a direction that we should move to. We can have fearless faith in God with limited resources, but I also want to encourage as I close up (laughs) to rely on God's word for decision making. Rely on God's word for decision making. Many times we don't want to depend on God. We don't want to depend on his word for direction. We would rather look to other different means. We would rather look to other different things that we feel as though is going to give us what we want. And I just want to encourage you that we can trust in the inerrant, the authoritative word of God. They give us direction. The word says that it is a lamp to our feet. In other words, it gives us direction. It gives us guidance. And we can rely on God's word. A couple, about 10 years ago, um, I uh, tore my um, Achilles. I was, I was doing something, and I tore my Achilles. And if you ever had a tore Achilles, it's very, very uh, painful, to say the least. But going to the doctor having to get it bandaged up, also had to be on crutches for a period of time. And I remember as I was trying to move around, hop around the, 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 my, my, my home, and how dependent I was on those crutches. How dependent upon I was on those crutches to hold me up so that I can actually move in a direction that I needed to go. What I'm trying to say is, God's word is the crutches that we need in order to get us to the direction that we need to go. And we have to rely and depend upon those crutches of God's word in order for us to help us. So, Roosevelt, we can have fearless faith in God despite having limited resources. And we can rely on God's word for decision making. And the church said, amen. Let me pray. (laughs) Heavenly Father, help us have fearless faith. Have Help us have the faith that you want us to have so we can go in a direction that we need to go. I think many people in this room, we're honest with ourselves, are complacent and are comfortable sitting under the pomegranate tree. Help us be able to move out in faith so that we can have victory in all areas of life that we need. Ask for for your help as we live this out in our homes, in our communities, and even for many of us beyond that. Empower us in such a way that we can be able to trust in you and not our own abilities so we can be the people of God as you have called us to be. I ask all of this, Lord, and pray in Jesus' mighty, mighty name. Amen.